Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We'll be in verses 36 through 50 as we continue this uh, brief series on the idea of servanthood. If you haven't picked up on it already, there's an undertone of, of uh, humility and pride in dealing with that, particularly as it relates to servanthood. Let's begin with verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, as Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she, was, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Well, I pray that as we study this passage, Father, that any pride that's in us would be crushed, any humility in us would be strengthened, so that we might care for those whom you sent your son Jesus to die for. And that we might also serve even the most broken among us. Father, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with this question. How do we get the chance to serve the broken? How do we get the chance to serve the broken? How did Jesus get the chance to serve the broken? Why was it that this woman, given her past and such that we can clearly see from the passage, why was this woman, why would this woman walk into this place and approach Jesus like she does? I mean, think about the context. She's in the midst of the Pharisee, Simon. Any Pharisee, for that matter, any religious leader would have been 
incredibly condemning, as you see in this passage, towards this woman. And yet, she walks in, and doesn't just walk in and watch, she walks in and participates. And indeed, she does the very things that Simon should have done, at least to some measure. She does, as Jesus says, to even greater extent. Now, you've got to understand some of the context. This wouldn't have been, this wouldn't have been the same as like you and, and uh, a family member having dinner in your living room and someone just opening the door and walking in, right? They, they had more public... Uh, environments, if you will. They had oftentimes patios or enclosed little courtyards where, where people would recline at table and eat and oftentimes discuss and talk about lofty things and people walking by could hang out on the edge of the property or even come in and be at the very least an observer of what was taking place. So it wouldn't have been terribly weird that this woman would randomly be in the middle of their dinner party eating or uh, uh, kissing Jesus' feet and such, but still consider the context. Two religious leaders, one being Jesus, one being Simon, and she walks in and doesn't just walk in to listen, she walks in and begins to show her affection towards Christ. In front of a Pharisee, why would this woman walk into a house to dine with Jesus and these religious leaders? What was it that Jesus had that afforded the opportunity, the chance to care for this broken woman? It's a question I want to ask as we think about servanthood. How do we get the opportunity to dine with broken people like the prostitute? Or broken people like your boss, your coworker, classmate, or neighbor? Look at verse 39 with me. Those are the questions we want to try to answer today. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw what the prostitute was doing, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, he condemns Jesus, right? This is not words of, he's not just stating a mere fact. He's condemning Jesus. He's saying, if he were a prophet, he would have known this, he didn't know this, so therefore he, should not be a, he must not be a prophet. But he condemns Jesus. Why? Why does he condemn Jesus? Oh, you say, well, because he's a Pharisee, and they just wouldn't touch these kind of people, and they, wouldn't, they would stay far away from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why? Why would a Pharisee do that? Why does he condemn Jesus? He condemned Jesus because all the Pharisee could see is the things of the prostitute's life that she was in too. The stuff that she did. The actions that she partook in. The Pharisee could only see those things. All Simon could see was the sexual immorality of the prostitute. All he could see was her sin with no thoughts of grace mercy, forgiveness, and worse in that context is to think of himself as not quite the sinner that she was. That's what Simon could see. All he could see was how she was. He could not see who she was. But listen here to how Jesus responds to Simon's condemnation. What's interesting is this whole prophet thing, it, it's, it's fun to watch Jesus interact with people because he doesn't even address that. Like He just ignores it because he understands the weightier issue. See, Jesus responds to Simon's condemnation this way, by saying to him, your love for the Father is proportional to your belief in how much 
he has forgiven you for. He doesn't go after this prophet thing. He doesn't, def- well, wait, no, no, Simon, I really am a prophet, and here's why I'm a prophet. He ignores that, and he goes on this fairly short diatribe on the idea that your faith is, your, your love for the Father is proportional to your belief in how much he has forgiven you. Now, I know in our theological circles or our Bible type circles that many of us in this church is in part of, we love to talk about the idea of beholding the glory of God and how that will change everything, how our sanctification is changed as we behold the glory of God. We believe that here as a church too. Beholding the glory of God is important. And it's even important in this passage that sanctification happens as we see Him more clearly and are changed by His beauty. Yes, that is true, and it's true in this passage. But look at what portion, at what idea takes up most of the time in this passage. Verse 42. Sorry, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love you more? Love him more? Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, and you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, so all of this, to point to this, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. There's two things I want to point out. One's very short. The second one we're going to spend much more time on today. But the first one is this. Jesus rebukes Simon for his lack of humble, loving hospitality. He rebukes Simon for a lack of humble, loving hospitality. He says to Simon, Jesus says, Simon, you showed me no love. By not doing these various things that he lists. He pointed out the fruit of the sin in Simon's heart. In order to show Simon that he loved God very little. That was his whole point. It's not just to teach him how to be hospitable when someone walks into the house. The point was his lack of hospitality was showing a lack of love for God. Now that's important as we piece this together. But his lack of hospitality, so the fruits in his life showed a lack of humility in his heart and a lack of love for the Father. But the prostitute, he says, has loved greatly. So the first thing what you see is that Jesus rebukes Simon for his lack of humble, loving hospitality. Second, Jesus teaches Simon this important point. And this is where we're going to spend most of the next few minutes at. Jesus teaches Simon this important point. That the further you understand the breadth and depth of your sin, and, hear me clearly, and, God's great forgiveness for it, the greater your love for the Father will be. Let me say it again. The further, the more complete, the more rich your understanding of your own sinfulness and God's costly forgiveness for it, the greater your love for Him will be. So listen, it's not just 
Behold the glory of God more, and the greater your love will be for Him. Or the greater your obedience will be. Or the greater your affections will be. That is part of it. That's part of it. That's a necessary part of it that many churches and many denominations completely miss. But Jesus says here, the extent to which you understand how much you have been forgiven is the extent to which you will love. And we understand that obedience, loving, joyful obedience, is born out of a love for the Father. Anything else is legalism. You see, we live in an, oh, it's, it's okay culture. Instead of a, I forgive you, culture. We don't live in a transgression and forgiveness culture. We live in a culture that minimizes wrongs, that dismisses the idea of pursuing reconciliation. And listen, everything's just okay. We're good. Jesus doesn't say to the prostitute, hey, you know, honey, you're okay. Just... Don't pay attention to these religious leaders. Don't pay attention to any of this, these wrong things that they're saying is true of your life. Don't pay attention to any of that. You're fine. I love you. Just go on. What's he say? He says, I forgive you. Matter of fact, before he says, I forgive you, she has sinned much. She has sinned much. He actually points out to her in that context, with her present, she has sinned much. And I forgive her. More on that in a bit. Listen, we have to be careful. Our lowering the weight of conviction on someone's life might actually lead them away from the cross. And we do this all the time. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's all right. We're good. How about what are you repenting for? This and this and this. You know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. But Jesus says the extent to which you understand how much you are forgiven is the extent to which you will love the Father. Now, here's the question, right? This is the, we need to walk down this road. How do we understand the extent to which we have been forgiven? How do you understand the extent of God's forgiveness? By looking at the scriptures and asking these questions to some effect, or to some, in some way, asking these questions. What is the passage saying about the glory of God? What is it saying about who He is, His character, His personhood, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness? What's it saying? And two, what is the passage saying about how I have failed as it relates to God's awesomeness? How have I, how do I not measure up to this? What is the passage saying about the glory of God? What is the passage saying about how I have failed? And then, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Then we, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've been washed in the blood, then you say this. For that, I have been forgiven. For that, I have been washed clean. To that extent, I have been forgiven. If I can say pastorally here for us in this church, why so many of us love so little, why, why so many of us love reading our Bibles so little, love serving so little, love sharing the gospel so little, love doing these things out of a love for the Father, 
is because we know so little of the extent of God's forgiveness. That He paid the price for all of those transgressions. All of them. It's a struggle to love others when you know very little of God's forgiveness. It's a struggle to see beyond your own needs and ego when you know very little of God's forgiveness. It's a struggle to love the body of Christ and serve her like you should when you know so little of God's forgiveness. And it's hard to extend hospitality and servanthood to someone like the prostitute when you know so little of your own forgiveness. Listen, most the, we need to understand, if there was any character for any of us to relate to in this story, it's the Pharisee. Not the prostitute. You and I might have glimpses by God's incredible grace and the work, powerful work of His Spirit where we might be able to relate more to the prostitute in the passage. But in practice and in reality, we relate more to the Pharisee. By God's grace, may we be like the prostitute in the passage. Listen, when we understand how much we've been forgiven, we will love the Father that much more. And with that love, we will be able to serve others. Listen, the prostitute understood more clearly just how much she had sinned and therefore experienced God's forgiveness. And this, it is to that extent that Jesus says she has loved the Father. Because she, Simon, has understood way more the extent of my forgiveness for her and her sins against me. See, Simon, like most, at least Western evangelicals, such thing. I mean, I'm sure this is probably true of most Christians of all time, but I'll try and keep the scope a little limited. Like most, think he is in need of just a little forgiveness because he has most of his act together. You and I tend to approach the gospel that way. And so Simon has minimal love for God because he has minimal understanding of forgiveness and what it looks like having come from the Father. And so when he looks at the woman, all he can see is all the sins she has committed. He knows very little of God's forgiveness. Right, he, th- he thinks he's done this much and God, he needs God to just make up for the little bit that he lacks. But this woman has done, she's hopeless. Like she's done all these sins. That's, you, why would you even touch her, Jesus? Why would you let her do that? You see, uh, the common theme particularly with the the ego and the pride and someone like Simon, is that the log in their eye is so thick and so heavy that they can't see clearly the other person. You see, we will never serve the prostitute until we see people for who they truly are. We will never serve someone like the prostitute until we see people for who they truly are. There's a little bit of a tricky thought to work through here, so just just hang with me. For who they truly are. I'm going to use some particular terms, and I need you to hang on to them as we work through. They're, They're not complicated terms, but I'm using words in a very specific way. Listen, Jesus saw through the prostitute's sin. He saw through her sin. Simon did not see through her sin. All he could see was her sin. All he could see was her unrighteousness. Jesus could see through it. Notice I didn't say Jesus pushed it aside. 
Jesus forgot about her sin. No, Jesus saw through her sin. The sin's still there. He could just see behind it, okay? He could see behind. He could see through the sin. Jesus knows that she was a sinner, that she sold herself for money. Jesus was very well of exactly what Simon was condemning him for not knowing. This would have been clear. There would have been no surprise. That, oh, oh well, I didn't realize that. No, he knew exactly. It's part of why he chose to ignore the condemnation. But Jesus knew this. I want to quote Rosaria Butterfield. This is such a helpful phrase. Jesus knew this, that being a prostitute might have been how she was, but it was not who she was. Jesus knew that being a prostitute might have been how she was, but it was not who she was. Going on, she says, Jesus knew that she was an image bearer. Jesus even knew that she was a chosen child of God. That she was chosen from before the foundation of the world and set apart for just this moment. See, Jesus saw through her sin. Not just how she was. Simon could only see how she was. Simon couldn't see who she was. I mean, this has application in so many different ways from from race to poverty. So many different applications. Jesus could see through their sin. Jesus dines here with a prostitute. Simon's point is you would have shooed her away. Simon's point is you wouldn't have let her touch you. I mean, understand, she's touching him in a rather intimate way. And Jesus does not shoo her away. Why does Jesus do this? Listen, Jesus dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us. He dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us. He saw through her sin So he dined with her so that he could touch. Listen, he doesn't do this. He does not do this because he discounts her sin or because he ignores it. This is important. He doesn't discount her sin. He doesn't justify her sin. He doesn't go, well, you know, if, if society would give her an opportunity to have a better job, she wouldn't be a prostitute. No, he doesn't justify her sin. Indeed, he says she has sinned greatly. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't deal with it by cheap grace. No, Jesus knows that sin is a big deal. But Jesus sees beyond what people do and sees them for who they are. Yes, Jesus has a hatred for the sin and the glory it robs God. And it will drive him ultimately to the cross. But this same love for the glory of God drives Jesus to dine with sinners in order that he might draw them close. He deals with her sin, right? He deals with it. For you have sinned much. Why else would he say you've been forgiven? You have sinned much. He deals with her sin, but he sees through her sin. See, here's the problem. We, like Simon, fundamentally view people how they are instead of who they are. We see the actions of people and love them often, most often, according to these actions. We fundamentally view people for how they are instead of who they are. And so therefore, because of that, we tend to do two things. One, we avoid them because we don't want their leprosy. 
well, I can't get too close. I'll be sucked into their whirlwind of drama and chaos. I'll get a touch of the leprosy if I do that. Two, so we either avoid them, or two, we discount their sin, forget about it, ignore it, or worse yet, we justify it. Then we can be in relationship with them. We just kind of push it to the side. I mean, ask yourself this question. How many friendships do I have where we've never talked about sin? How many friendships do I have where we, I just, I just kind of justify it or ignore it, push it to the side? That's just cheap grace. It's just cheap grace. Some of us have relationships right now based on a lot of cheap grace. And we devalue the forgiveness of God for sinners when we operate on cheap grace. You see, in our culture, again, people are seen for what they do. People are seen. People are valued for what they do. You go to work and you're valued, most of you, for what you do, right? They don't give you a paycheck because, wow, you, you know, you, you, you are a child of God. Let me give you a paycheck, right? They don't do that, right? And, and not necessarily that they should. You're there to perform an act of service and they're there to pay you to do that. But our culture beyond that is driven by a sense of people are seen for what they do. So I've seen this in relationships myself, experienced this even in discipleship. Discipleship of people who love God. What happens is inevitably they will fail. Inevitably they will fail because people fail. We fail. Then, listen, I'm giving you some experience of mine in the past. Then when you go to hold them accountable for their failure, because they cannot fathom the idea that someone could love and care for them for who they are instead of what they do, they run. They run. So you and I all the time run from relationships because we can't fathom the idea that someone could love us for who we are instead of how we are. It's because our view of humanity, even ourselves, is the very same as Simon. Being a successful church man, a church woman, that's who we are. Having it all together, that's who we are. Listen, I can just speak, again, from some personal experience here. This is why, at least part of the reason why your elders enjoy the friendship and community that they have. Here's why. Listen, we have had harder conversations about deep sin and the great forgiveness of God than most people will ever experience. And knowing that we love and care for each other because of who we are and not how we are, that brings genuine gospel community. That brings friendships beyond friendships that transcend even this temporal world. Listen, we as elders uh, about each other believe that sinning might be something that we have done, but it is not who we are. Who we are is much different than what we have done. Listen, we struggle 
moving beyond just elders, just everyone in general, we struggle to see people beyond the consequences of their life choices and beyond the consequences of God's sovereign choices for their life. Listen, some people living in the fruit of their sinful and foolish decisions, some people living in the fruit of God's sovereign choosing, I mean, ultimately all of it's under God's sovereign choosing. Don't think I'm separating those two, but one fits under the other. But nevertheless, we have a hard time seeing people beyond the consequences of their life choices. I mean, how many times have you looked at someone and said, well, if they wouldn't have made that stupid decision? I mean, am I the only person that said that? <laughs> like, well, if they just wouldn't have done that, then they wouldn't be, I mean, it's, that might be true, right? They wouldn't be in that situation if they wouldn't have made that poor decision. But the attitude towards that, right? The attitude towards them, the, the lack of seeing them as someone broken who needs help instead of someone who is, stupid and just needs cast aside there's a big difference because jesus knows the reality of one's sin and yet knows who they are really he can and does dine with them and draws them close again the question is how does how does jesus get to dine with someone like the prostitute because he sees the prostitute for who she is, not just how she is. Sure, all of the how has got to be dealt with. It does. And Jesus deals with it. You and I can help them find the right dealing with how they are as well. But you and I think that we got to deal with the how they are. And we got to fix all of that and help clean them up. And, and maybe we do have some role in that. But our primary role is to see them for who they are and lead them to the one who died for them. So who are people? How do we, if we say not how people are, but who people are, who are people? People are image bearers. Every person that's ever walked, will ever walk this earth, is an image bearer of God. Now whether they reflect God's glory well or not, they're still God's special, unique, and loved creation. They were meant we are meant, these future image bearers are meant to reflect God's glory and live in relationship with Him. Now what do we also know? Who are people? People are also broken image bearers. Our reflection of His glory has been broken. That people are hurting and hurting others when they seek to show their own glory in place of God's. So here's the question, right? Can you love the broken image bearer? Can you love the broken? Do you love the broken image bearer? Can you love the person that needs to be forgiven of much? Can you love that person? You can to the extent to which you know two things. What all you have been forgiven of. And listen. Look at me. And that you have indeed been forgiven for it. It's both. Not just one. Not just the other. It's both that you, the extent of your sin and the fact that you've been forgiven, it's both. I mean, I don't know about you, but that makes me say, I wrote this in my notes, it's in all caps, right? Which means I'm yelling it. That you indeed have been forgiven. What a glorious and loving and faithful and gracious and merciful God. I have sinned in these ways against Him, but He has forgiven me of those sins. 
listen, what's that, what's that do? What's, what's, what, what should that do? He must love me so much. Why do I love other things more than I love him? Church, God looks at you knowing the fullest extent of how you are. He knows how you are more clear than you'll ever know how you are. But He has loved you for who you are. Yes, He's going to deal with the how you are. But the who you are, His image bearer, His glory reflector, His child, His son, His daughter, His redeemed his son's bride, his kings and queens, the ones to sit on the throne next to his firstborn. He loves you. Don't you know your love for the Father is in response to knowing just how much he loved you and has forgiven you? Listen, we love the prostitute first because he loved us first. We love the prostitute first because he loved us first. What I mean by that is we love the prostitute before she walks in repentance because he loved us long before we walked in repentance. Jesus shows, listen, this is, this is key in this passage. Jesus shows that his forgiveness is not contingent on her love. Let me say that again. Jesus shows that his love, his forgiveness, is not contingent on her love. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. See, for you and I, forgiveness and loving someone else is contingent on their love or reciprocating love for us. But here's just the opposite. He shows Simon that she loves because he has forgiven her. The gospel is free. Verse 47. So you're like, okay, where, where do you see that at? Help me see it. Here we go, 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. All right, so look at what he's saying. She has been forgiven, for she loved much. Okay, at that point, I think it's still a little confusing. Like, was she forgiven because she loved Jesus much? But, but look at the next phrase. I think the next phrase is the clarifying phrase. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you see the order? He who is forgiven little loves little. The forgiveness precedes the love. Right, that's what we, we just read the passage of 1 John. We love, why? Because he first loved us. He didn't love us based upon our loving Him. He loved us first, and we love Him because He loved us. Jesus is saying the same thing. She has loved much because she has been forgiven of much. The forgiveness is what spurs the love. So then you ask the question, so what is faith? What is faith in this passage? Because she, He goes on a little bit later and talks about because of your faith, you've been forgiven and such. Listen, her faith is not a, a work. It's not a, a work in the sense of she is having enough faith that God would save her. In the sense that she has to well up this enough faith that God would save her. It's not something that she does. Faith is not something that she does to earn herself this forgiveness. Faith instead is a posture. It's a posture. 
someone said, it's a hunger, an openness, a realization of her helplessness. Pastor, author Joel Beakey said this, faith is the empty hand by which we receive Christ and all His benefits. Listen, faith doesn't work as a hand half full of hope in our own righteousness, looking to Jesus to make up for what we are lacking. Faith is an empty hand by which we receive Christ and all His benefits. We love because He first loved us. The covenant of grace, I'll talk about that for a few, few seconds here. The covenant of grace says this, we were loved first before our faith in God. Then through faith, we experience that love and in response, we love Him. And this is the way it has always been. Adam and Eve were loved first. Even when they had sinned against God, who came looking for them? Who came with a plan to atone for them? Who came with a plan for even a temporal, very visible atoning work that would point ultimately to Jesus? It was God. Think back to the prodigal son. It's the same pictures painted there. Who loved God first? Abraham or God? Who loved first? Abraham or God? Who loved first? And all these examples, David. Listen, genuine servanthood, I was reminded as I read someone this week, the genuine servanthood is not transacted for money, does not objectify image bearers and falsify the commandments of God. Genuine servanthood does not encourage self-aggrandizement. The gospel creates community that welcomes others in. Right, the gospel says this, she goes on, you are welcome here. Come as you are. Take my hand. I'm not leading. I'm following. Jesus is leading. Now listen, this is different than what we hear in our culture so broadly. You are welcome here and all of your sinfulness is welcome here to abide forever. That's a different gospel. It's a false gospel. But what is the gospel is that we love people for who they are, not how they are. The how they are will get dealt with in time and in a various appropriate ways. We come with open hands believing that the gospel changes people's lives changes how they are. You see, Simon could only see how she was. Jesus could see who she was. Let me give you some practical help here. I would encourage you, for most of us, unlike, like, just like Simon, who spends all of his life critiquing other people, we should spend more of our time critiquing ourselves Listen, a community that is growing in knowing the forgiveness of God is a community that is growing in loving God. And a community growing as such will be a community that welcomes the prostitute. That's a place where the prostitute knows, I can find hope. She may not know what that hope is, she may not know what needs to change. She may not know any of those things. She, but a community 
That is knowing the forgiveness of God and growing in, therefore, in the love of God is a community growing that will welcome the prostitute. You see, the love, the last thing I want you to see is the love that powers servanthood is costly. It's costly, but it's powerful. It's costly, but it's powerful. One writer said, cheap love says, idols are welcome here. Cheap love buys counterfeit categories of what it means to be human. It goes on, idolatry is dangerous. It miscues worship. It miscues affection, identity. It miscues community. It makes everyone sick around them. This kind of love is cheap and easy. Listen, even in our theological circles, we can fall into this trap even in the name of good theology. Like grace. We have to be gracious. Or God's glory. Just look at God's glory and, and all of it will be fixed. Like That's true. It's true. But passages like we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next and will be finished when we see Him face to face must be put alongside passages like the one we just read. Where He says, the one who knows how much He's been forgiven, to that extent, He will love God. He will love God. Why? Because that picture right there shows us the glory of God like nothing else. That this holy creator would provide a way to grant forgiveness to us wretched sinners. That's the grand display of his glory. Yes, we see his glory in lots of other things, but that work through his son Jesus it's the grand display of His glory. Listen, gospel servanthood has sharp edges. The idea of hospitality, even towards the prostitute, hospitality towards each other, servanthood has sharp edges if it's gospel-driven. God does not love us just the way we are. I'm not contradicting what we've already said and what the passage says. God does not love us just the way we are. He loves who we are, His children, His image bearers. But He does not love us just how we are. He doesn't love the how of our lives. Listen, Jesus says, woman, your sins are forgiven. And indeed, you have been forgiven much. Right? See the sharp edges of Jesus' hospitality. Again, he doesn't just say, you know, it'll be okay. You're all right. God loves you. Go on. You're fine. No, he says, he's telling her, I have loved you even in your brokenness. And your sins are much, but I have forgiven you. That's what he says to her. This one writer said, God's love is costly, bloody, and powerful. But we won't understand how costly and powerful and bloody it is unless we see how much we've been forgiven. The writer says, this costly love, it drilled down on the mocking of Satan. His mercy in the Son paid the price of His justice in the Father. And His Spirit forges an irreplaceable and unbreakable and eternal union with Him that carries us through death itself. We cannot forget the hospitality, that gospel servanthood has sharp edges, and it was costly. This kind of authentic Christianity has high costs, but it has also high outcomes. It has high costs, but it has high outcomes. It has high yields. As someone said, it will only work 
when the strength of our words match the strength of our relationships. When the strength of our words match the strengths of our relationships. When our Listen, we can't have that kind of relationship and say those kinds of words and if we don't see things the way God sees them and see people the way God sees them. Look at the passage. God loved us and forgave us. That's what Jesus is saying to Simon and to ultimately to the prostitute. God loved us and forgave us. What is that? What is that? What kind of language is that? What kind of language is forgiveness language? It's relational language. It's relational language. Forgiveness is not important if there's not the desire for relationship. Forgiveness language and loving language is a part of relational language. It's communal language. It's relationships. Ultimately, our relationship with Him. What if I walked up to you and said this? What if I walked up to you and said this? I want you to know, I, Matt, know the deepest parts of your sinfulness. I even know the deepest parts of every sin that you have done or will do towards me. There is nothing you can say to me about your wretched self that I don't already know. And yet I love you. And because I love you, I have provided a way at great cost to me for you to be forgiven of all those sins against me so that we can be in the most flourishing and glorifying and eternal relationship ever. Now listen, my desire is not to equate myself with God in this passage by any shape or form. But I said it that way so that you could understand the relationship aspect of it. We're not just talking about you being connected to some set of theological ideas, although those are incredibly important. We're talking about you and your relationship with your Creator, your Redeemer. And this is the gospel. If you are a child of God, then God loves you. Not for what you do or how you are. He loves you because of who you are. His child, His masterpiece, His greatest possession. He has forgiven you of your sin at the costly expense of His Son. And the extent to which you know and believe, this is the extent to which you will love God. And as a result, the more you will love the prostitute. The more you will love the broken around you. And when you love the prostitute the way the prostitute was loved by Jesus, When you love the prostitute the way the prostitute was loved by Jesus, you will find yourself dining at table with her and talking about the forgiveness of sin that comes only through the love work of God, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and took God's wrath so that He could draw us close so that we might dine at His table. That we might be welcomed to His table forever. Let's pray.
Father God, may we, may we see, may we, may we have eyes to see, may we have hearts to believe. Father, we have been forgiven of much. May, may you crush our egos so that we can begin to see more clearly the sin that we have transgressed against you and against others. But don't let us stop there. Don't let us stop there. The law is good at leading us there. And, and at least for that purpose, we should engage the law. But Father, you didn't stop there. You, you provided a way f- for us to be forgiven. And for those sins, I have been forgiven. Because Jesus took the price for all of them. Even the ones I don't know of yet. The ones that I've yet to discover and we'll discover tonight or tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now. But Father, I pray that when when I discover them that I would see that, oh, so that's how much you loved me. I didn't know. I only knew this much. Now I know this much. Father, you loved us. Not because of how we are, you're going to deal with that. You love us for who we are, your children. So, fathers, we understand that. That will fuel the power necessary to love the prostitute. May we see her, not for how she is, for you will heal that. To see her for who she is. An image bearer of God. Thank you for seeing us. Seeing through our sins. And loving us in spite of our sins. That while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Before our repentance. Christ died for us. You loved us. May we walk in humble repentance, Father. Thank you for forgiving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What uh, timing. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, if you will, uh, about every three weeks as a church. Uh, It's important because it reminds us, at least it's important, at least for this point, that it reminds us that, that just like the prostitute, not her sin, the sin would be dealt with. But because her sin was dealt with, because God loved her, she was welcome to dine at the table. But we, church, our sin is not welcome at the table. That's why Jesus paid for it. But because Jesus paid for it, we're a welcome at God's table. We're a welcome. That's part of why we do the Lord's Supper is because we're reminded that we are welcome at His table for who we are now being found in Christ. And so the same, like, the same thought flows into the Lord's Supper that if we have sin that we're not walking in repentance for, we should not partake. We should ask God to deal with that. We should repent of it right now. Wait no longer. Repent and partake. But also, if you're not a follower of Jesus or not sure if you're a follower of Jesus, then then you should not partake for the same reason. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, repent now. Ask God to forgive you for all the sins that you know of and the sins that you don't know of. Believing that Jesus paid for your sin when he died on the cross. His cross death is 
like a preparation for us to have a seat at the table. So I wanted to pray again for our communion time. The instructions are this, uh, and beyond what I just said, is that just um, remain in your seats and um, just come forward and spend some time in prayer and come forward and um, partake with us. Make your way back to your seat. No particular order. You don't have to wait on a, on a row. Back row can go first if you want to. Um, and, uh, and then Greg will invite us to stand and sing. So let me pray. Father, as we partake in your communion, as we partake and are reminded of the opportunity to sit, sit at the table and dine with you, may we be reminded that we are in desperate need, just like Simon and just like the prostitute, we are in desperate need for you to wash us clean of our sins. And we're in desperate need also to know that we have been forgiven of those sins. So, Father, as we partake, may we understand more clearly just one degree of glory from where we were when we walked in, that we would understand just one degree more how much you've loved us. Your people, your children your prized possessions. Father, may this be true. May this be so. In Jesus' name, amen.